Well, good to be back with you guys as usual. Quite a humbling introduction there. I'm really not all that special, I promise. Uh, So before I pray, this is part one of a series I did on Union with Christ after three months on sabbatical. Uh, And and the challenge with a doctrine like this is to, to wrap up something I thought about for three months, uh, especially even just the one verse I'll preach on this morning, is to, to confine everything I thought of and journaled, meditated on, applied uh, into sermons. Uh, it's really difficult. I felt like I could not bring people into that which I had enjoyed learning and experiencing. But uh, the, I'll give you a quick disclaimer before I pray. There's, there's a chance you will hear this sermon and think, but there's so much more. Or how does this relate to holiness and living our life for Christ? And how does it affect the community as a whole? And those questions are answered in a second sermon. So if, if for some reason you can handle 45 minutes of me this morning and want 45 minutes more, it's online. If you can't, that's okay. But tonight, or this morning, is uh, Christ in me. So more of an individual aspect of our union with Christ, and then the second one was uh, Christ in us, a more corporate uh, vision of that. So let me pray, and uh, let's hope that the Lord will, will do a good work in us. Father, we adore you, we adore all of the great realities that we already sang about and that we heard about through uh, Scripture being read, and ask now, God, that you would do a great work in us. First, would you fix our eyes? upon your Son? Would you help us not just see Him, but understand the depths of who He is and what He has done for for us and what that means for us now? Holy Spirit, I do ask, knowing that one of your primary ministries is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, would you so lift Him up exalt Him and shine the light and all the glory on Him in a way that stirs our affections. Lord, would You help us leave here today changed just a little bit more than when we came in and changed because of the goodness and glory of Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. So as a little kid, uh, my dad was a, a very hard-working construction worker. And I remember every day as a little three, four-year-old kid, he would, he would come home and be exhausted. I wouldn't see him in the morning because he would leave three, four in the morning and he'd get home around five or six at night. And he had this tradition of as soon as he got home, he'd go straight to their bedroom and he'd, he'd take all his clothes off and his hard hat and his boots, lay them at the end of his bed. And then a lot of nights he went straight to sleep knowing he would have to get back up again early in the morning, and I, I remember this one time running into the room and, and sneaking in there and putting on all these massive clothes, right? Back then, construction gear was like the big jean jacket, the jean pants. I had his boots on and his hard hat, and I came walking out into the kitchen, and my mom said, you stay right there. Your dad has to see this. So she runs and grabs the Polaroid camera. Some of you folks, that's a, that's a camera, and it takes real pictures instead of digital things, and Took the picture, you know, waving it, puts it on the fridge. 
And I remember she was just so excited. But for me, I wanted to be like my dad, even though these clothes were massively too big. And similarly, the doctrine of union with Christ is like this. In a sense, we are, we've, we're experiencing by faith as believers the forgiveness of Christ, the redemption of Christ, being found righteous in Him, but we're growing up into these realities. Rankin Wilborn, in a, a fantastic book on union with Christ, he says, you are not striving to attain it, talking about union with Christ. He says, you're striving to lay hold of what is already yours. You are growing up into it. This morning, I want to lead us all into an understanding of our union with Christ and that it actually means we're growing into life in its fullness the way God originally intended for life to be. And this life is found nowhere else than in the person of Jesus Christ. Now the biblical concept of union with Christ, it's, I would argue, Paul's main theology. If you read through Paul's epistles and other people like John and Peter as well, but especially Paul, he uses the phrase in him or in Christ 163 times in his epistles. You could say that Paul would encapsulate all he believed about God and what God has done on behalf of humanity by that phrase in Christ or in him or our union with Christ. And I would argue, and I think Paul would argue the same thing, that our union with Christ is the most important thing we can know in regards to our relationship with God. And as we'll see this morning, there really is nothing more stunning, nothing more marvelous, nothing more beautiful than being found in Him. So my hope for us is that, in a sense, I can peel back the blinds a bit this morning or kind of crack the door and and you guys can get a little peek at this vast array, this vista of beauty that is found in our union with Christ and it would encourage and spur on your own study and enjoying what God has to say about this. Now the truth is, because Paul says this 163 times, there's no way we're going to get an exhaustive look at union with Christ this morning. And that's why I'm saying I'm hoping to just give us a little peek. But the truth is, as overwhelming as it might sound because it's such a big and beautiful doctrine, we can kind of stray away being afraid that it might too, be too big. But my goal and my prayer for you is that we would look at it with great detail And that this morning would lead to greater study. Rankin Wilborn, he says this about it being such a big and beautiful doctrine. He says, the fact that we can't get to the bottom of the ocean doesn't mean we shouldn't put our feet in or even swim. And my prayer for you guys and my continued prayer for myself is that we wouldn't just wiggle our toes around in this doctrine, so to speak. But we would get a running start and belly flop off the dock into the great river and lake of His grace and swim like tireless kids. The main text I want to look at tonight is Galatians 2.20. But before we look at Galatians 2, let me say a quick prayer. Father, please, by Your Spirit, come now. You have done a great work by giving us Your Scriptures. Your Word is authoritative and Spirit 
You are the one who breathed these words out and you also dwell in the people whose ears are listening. So would you bring your words and these ears together to bring love and life change in Jesus' name. Now this is a verse that has always been very special to me. Uh, when I first was converted, it, w- it was kind of one of those first verses that became, you know, the life verse. And if you've ever received an email from me, at the bottom it's pasted there every time, Galatians 2.20. But as I just took three months of sabbatical, I sat there and thought about this passage over and over and over. Uh, rather than going quick to commentaries or other things, I, I walked and I laid down and I thought. And this verse God used to, to really help me see not just the beauty of union with Christ, but how that changes who I am and how I live. And, and guess what? I'm not the first one. The Apostle Paul is writing this and he says, I have been crucified with Christ. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now at the beginning, in the first little phrase, what we have to notice is that a death is taking place. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Now in the context of Galatians, Paul is talking about his relationship to the law and justification and all these things, but this is a summary statement of sorts that is laying forth this death and life that have to take place. And he's really saying that the Christian life is primarily defined by finding this true, real, and lasting life. But the truth of the matter is, if we desire to find this life, we must first die. That's why he starts with, I have been crucified with Christ. Now this might sound like a paradox of sorts at first to you, and let me assure you, it absolutely is. And the truth of the Christian Scriptures is often the paradox that takes a new heart and new eyes to see, or in Paul's words, a death and a life to see and better understand. So the first order of affairs that we must know and experience is this death Paul is talking about. C.S. Lewis wrote, in mere Christianity, he says, in other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. And herein lies the problem. Apart from the grace of God, our will is so hell-bent, so opposed to God, that we will not voluntarily die the death that we need to die to experience life. Without this death taking place, we are actually enslaved to ourselves and our own sin. And the truth is, we love it. We're okay with it. The biblical concept for this life apart from faith in Christ is called in the flesh. 
Right? Paul often opposes these two, contrasts them, life and in the flesh. And that term is a way of descri- describing this human nature that we live in by birth and continue to live in without the grace of God coming and changing us. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 7-8, through 8, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So according to Paul, you're in either one of two categories. You're living in the flesh apart from the grace of God, or you're living in the grace of God by faith in His Son. There is no middle ground. There is no neutrality. Every single one of us here lives under one of these two designations. And the devastating truth of the matter is that on our own, we're in an inescapable situation with an inescapable future filled with wrath and torment that will live for ourselves and ourselves alone. Even more, we can't even raise the white flag of surrender to die the death we so desperately need to die without the grace of God. And yet it's this this sorrowful and dark background that makes the good news of the gospel shine so bright. You see, God in His great love and grace for us, He knew our plight. He knew that on our own we would not die this death. And so by His own initiative and love, He takes on a body comes to earth and so wraps us up in Himself and goes to a cross and dies the death we so desperately need to die. Later in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis picks up on this idea and he says, our attempts at this dying will succeed only if we men share in God's dying. Just as our thinking can succeed only because it is a drop out of the ocean of His intelligence. But we cannot share God's dying unless God dies. And He cannot die except by being a man. You see, this is the heart of the Gospel. This is the good and great news of the Gospel that Jesus Himself, by His own initiative and love for us, took on a body to be absolutely obliterated and destroyed in our place. And because He loved us, He knew we couldn't die this death on our own. And so there He went, by His own initiative, to the cross 2,000 years ago, and in this real and yet mysterious way, hoisted us up on the cross with with Him, and then was buried in the grave somehow with us. And therein, we find the death We so desperately needed to die. But the beautiful thing is, if that wasn't enough, if that doesn't put on display the great love and mercy of our God, Jesus wasn't done. You see, He came to fulfill a mission, and His mission was not yet accomplished. You see, He didn't take on a body just to die and leave us in the grave with him. No, he came to die so that we could have the life that we so desperately desire. 
And so three days later, he rose from the grave victorious over sin, death, and Satan. And in the same way we died with him and were buried with him, we were also raised victoriously with him. In Romans 6, 3-4, Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in his baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, Paul's trying to make something very clear here. He is saying this, through the death of one man, you so also died. But likewise, when he rose victoriously, a host of family and people came out of the grave with him into a real and lasting and eternal life. By the work of one man, you too find life. Let me give you guys a picture of this. In the the evening that the Second World War was about to begin. There was a man named Nicholas Winton. Uh, YouTube this, and you can cry later when you watch it at home. But Nicholas Winton uh, was a man who had a heart and sympathy for the Jewish children that on the night of the Second World War, if he did not do something to help these kids, could have easily died and experienced the atrocities of, of the Holocaust and the war. And so by his own initiative, without letting anyone else in on it, he found families in Britain that would host 669 different children. On his own initiative, he found all these homes and started getting all these kids out of there before the war started. And this went unknown to Britain and really the whole world until 50 years later, his wife was in the attic and she's she's cleaning out the attic and she finds this this book, this scrapbook, and as she opens it up, she finds name after name after name, and then she finds the name of these families and these addresses where these kids went. And so she tries asking him, what's this about? And he really doesn't want to talk about it. So she goes and gets help from the government and finds a lady that's willing to team up with her. And, And by asking this lady to find some information and use her resources, all of a sudden, Nicholas Winton's wife realizes the great work that he did. And so they come up with this whole plan together to somehow honor Nicholas Winton for all that he did. And so they set up this whole fake TV show thing, right? And, and his wife brings him to this show and he thinks he's just going to a live recording of a TV show. And all of a sudden they start playing on the screen all of these things that Nicholas Winton had done. And you see his face and he's kind of in shock and just like... How how does anyone know about this? And then the host says, is there anyone here that's life was saved by the work of Nicholas Wynn? And this lady sitting right next to him on the other side of of him and his wife grabs his arm and just like starts crying and and he looks at her and and he's starting to feel the weight of this this grown woman and and the life he saved who now is 60-something years old and she's just bawling. And if that isn't beautiful enough and powerful enough, the host says, now is there anyone else here whose life was saved by the work of Nicholas Winton? In one of the most beautiful and powerful scenes, the whole show, every single audience member just stands up 
And it, it's this moment of silence, but like tears. And Nicholas Winton is just looking around in shock as the brevity of what he had done starts to sink in. And, and all of a sudden, he, he just doesn't know how to respond. Because by one man's work, 669 lives were saved. In the same way, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, we are standing and we are alive and experiencing real and true and lasting life because of the work of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus single-handedly saved the lives of His people and caused them to experience the death and the life they so desperately needed. And you see what's, what's crazy to me about this? If it wasn't enough for Him to die the death we so needed and then give us the life we so desperately desired, by faith we are united to Him and all of a sudden we inherit this host of blessings and benefits. Now, I want to make sure before I read this next text that I give a quick disclaimer. All of the benefits of God are for us and good. But the greatest benefit is Christ Himself. He is the treasure that we gain through faith in Him. But in His good will towards us, everything He earned through His perfect life and His death and resurrection, He gives to us, not as needy children, but as those who already have everything in Him. And so I want to read a text and, and I want you to pay special attention to all the in Him or in Christ or in the Beloved phrases. And just get a quick little glimpse of all we have in Him. Ephesians 1, 3-14 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. I mean, that's all you need. You can just shut down shop right there and say that's, that's enough. 
What an abundance of goodness found in Christ. Now when you take a step back and start to survey all of this wonderful benefits and all this array of beauty that comes in being united to Christ, we start to realize we're granted salvation from start to finish in Him. We've been adopted as part of His family in Him. Our eyes have been opened to the will of God in Him. And our eyes have even been opened to the future that awaits us in Him. But more than anything, our eyes are open to Him. He who satisfies our soul. The truth is, it's no longer us who live but He who lives in us. As Rankin Wilborn says, the lifeblood of another, talking about Jesus, flows within you and gives you life. And because of this union, because of this beautiful and eternal union, we enter in to an all-consuming fellowship with the triune God itself. You know, one of the most startling verses, one of the most beautiful verses that's really, for me, difficult to wrap my mind around, uh, Jesus gives us a little glimpse of how real this union is. On, on the night he was going to be betrayed by Judas and was going to be falsely arrested, he sits down with his disciples, and in a great and long uh, series of talks, he says this specifically in John 14.23 If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And then listen to this. And we will come to him and make our home with him. I mean, this is astounding to me. <laughs> that the Trinitarian God who spoke all things into creation somehow dwells with his people. What else do we really need? Why is it that our hearts so long for more when what we have by faith in Him is more than enough? Well, I'll tell you my own struggle. And I think it might be the same for some of you. The truth is, you get this, this doctrine of the union with Christ set before you and it's this panorama that you can look and every spot seems so beautiful and it seems real and, and you might even believe it. And yet, the dilemma raises in your own heart because how can you be so united to Christ and all of these beautiful and amazing and eternal things be true and how can you not feel it? How can this be so true and I, I don't feel like it's true? How can you say these things are real that Christ somehow dwells in me and I in Him and sure doesn't feel that way? Well, Paul has an answer for that. In Galatians 2.20 when he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God. I didn't mention this in the first service, but Charity, uh, who is a fellow Kaleo veteran, and we gladly 
give her to you guys and hope she's a, a good service to you. I uh, said, let me show you the King James and it's in, in the faith of the Son of God. And then if you look at the Greek, it's debatable, but it could be the faithfulness of the Son of God. But either way, I think what Paul's trying to do here is, is expose that there is this gap for us, that we really know these things that are true, that if Paul says by the power of the Holy Spirit breathing out Scripture that we are united to Christ, and yet we don't feel like it, there's got to be something, an instrument of sorts that can fill that gap. And Paul's saying it's, it's faith. You see, faith is this God-given gift that's meant to close that gap. It's meant to be both operative and powerful in everyday life. What I mean by that, by operative and powerful, is that it's the instrument that allows us to take hold of that which is true and bring it into the present. Hebrews 11.1 defines faith this way, really, really similar, says... Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Right? So the, the author of Hebrews is, is saying, faith is really not this blind thing that we just kind of say and do, but it's actually this deep-seated conviction and belief in the promises and the person and work of God that brings them close and says, even when my feelings disagree, God is right. And man, that is, that's great news for me because my feelings and my emotions are often pretty powerful. And I'm quick to think that that's probably true for everyone else in here, but me, I just don't feel that way. And it's in those moments where faith fills that gap. Now the thing is, faith isn't just something to fill the gap. It's not just an instrument. But faith, as we see in Galatians 2, is supposed to be placed somewhere. Right? And that's why he says, in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul's faith and our faith as well is meant to be directed to the Son of God and all he has accomplished on our behalf. And when the feelings and the emotions don't seem to match our faith, it's then that we're supposed to look at the person and work of Christ and once again have our hearts melted. To say, He loved me. He gave Himself for me. This also, as a side note, puts guardrails on the very present danger of loving all of our benefits in our union with Christ more than the benefactor. It derives us to Him because Paul doesn't say, just look at the benefits. Paul says, faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You see, brothers and sisters, the primary goal of the Christian life is not to have stronger faith. Should we pursue that? Should God grant that? Yes, please. Praise God if He does. But the primary goal of the Christian faith is communion with God. And you see, the temptation is often to, to measure our faith by 
our faith. It's to measure our relationship with God by how strong our faith is. And C.S. Lewis picks up on this as well. And he, he says, the presence of God is not the same as the sense of the presence of God. It is the actual presence, not the sensation of the presence of the Holy Ghost, which begets Christ in us. The sense of the presence is a super added gift for which we give thanks when it comes. Man, that's helpful for me, you guys. I hope that's helpful for you because how many times have we felt like God is happy with us because we're feeling good that day? Right? Like God is very pleased today because I woke up, I did my devotions, I prayed a ton, I served my neighbor, I'm loving my wife, I took my kids out, and man, I, I even prayed before bed. God is so happy. But then the next day when depression hits, can't get our eyes off ourselves and we're drowning in sorrow, what do we conclude? There's no way God can love me. And Paul's laying before us an objective reality that says we are united to Christ by faith, not by feeling. That is what drives our faithfulness, is Christ's faithfulness. Or in short, it is the perfect Christ that saves us, not our imperfect faith. The question now becomes, let's say all of these things are true and you're grabbing onto them and saying, okay, I'll take that. I believe that. So what? what? What does it matter? What does it change? If we have died this death with Christ and have this new life bursting forth from inside of us, what changes? Well, if you've paid much attention to Galatians 2.20, the big change in Paul is an identity change. See, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And I know the, the doctrine and the teaching of this church, and I've listened to sermons about identity, so this shouldn't be too new to most of you. But the, the main thing that has changed for Paul and changed for any believer in Christ is that our identity is no longer wrapped up in just us or what we do, our identity is primarily found in the person and work of Christ. When God the Father looks at us, He sees His Son. Doesn't mean He totally forgets and diminishes how He has created you to be and, and the special parts of you because you are wondrously and fearfully made, but it does mean that primarily your new identity is in Christ. This means that our new life is no longer identified by the things we do or our accomplishments. It means that you can no longer identify yourself by your job, by your marriage, by your singleness, by all of your accolades and accomplishments, or even by your failures. But God Himself is identifying you in Christ. Matt mentioned some of my story, and I will tell you one of the greatest struggles for me today is when someone challenges me and, and doesn't believe that I have the best intentions for them or tries to question what I'm trying to do to love them and serve them, the first thing I do is I go back to my military experience and I say, well, I accomplished this, I did this. If you only knew what I've been through, 
man, I'm in this process of letting that die. Did God use that in my life? Absolutely. I don't want to diminish that. But I am not primarily that. I am in Christ. In fact, if our accomplishments or our failures or anything like that is where we tend to turn to identify ourselves and they compete with our union with Christ, Paul actually calls calls us to literally throw them in the trash. In Philippians 3, he he sets up this this scene in verses 1-6 through about this perfect righteousness he had according to the law and being a Jew and lists this resume that's really unbeatable for any Pharisee or Jew. But then he follows it up in verses 7-9. through He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see, Paul's identity had completely changed. Really, to two words. In Him. And the best thing is being found in Him shouldn't make losing those identities a loss whatsoever, but a freeing joy. The truth of the matter is, if we read Scripture rightly, If we're finding our identity in Christ, we're going to be better at our jobs. We're going to be better spouses. We're going to be better parents. We're going to be better and more faithful in our singleness. And our failures won't even define us any longer. Faith in Christ brings a true life, a moment by moment being caught up into communion with God. The truth is we're always looking for something practical right, to apply in our lives. And J. Gresham Machen on this doctrine said it best, said practical Christianity is Christ Himself. If we're finding our union with Christ is that which speaks most true of us, all else will flow out naturally. And that is why Paul uses this phrase 163 times. See, John talked about it over and over in the terms of abiding in Christ. So, to close, if all of this is true, where are we headed? See, I like to end my sermons with a, with a heavenward trajectory. As important as it is to preach the cross and resurrection, I think every week, I also want to drive us heavenward. So how does, how does this future awaiting us so change the way we live now? Or how does our union with Christ now help us live faithfully until then? Well, I've been arguing that we're growing into this reality of union with Christ. The clothes don't fit well. They're a little baggy. We're limping along at times. So I want to help you see what is to come. In Revelation 7, John is given this this picture of God's people worshiping Him. 
They're fully grown into their union with Christ. Look at this picture with me in Revelation 7, 13 and 14. It says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. I like that. John's got a little hood in him. He's like, man, you know. He's like, why are you asking me? You're the one up here in heaven. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The good news is what awaits us one day is that we will fully fit into our union with Christ. There won't be any more bagginess, no more doubt, no more sin, no more struggle, no more unbelief. But we will walk in the joy of the Lord. We will be united to Him no longer by faith, but by sight. Now, what a day. John goes on in verses 15 through 17, and he says, Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So in Fusion Church, you have in Christ died the death that was absolutely necessary to live the life you so desperately desire. And so my encouragement to you is it is difficult this side of heaven. But don't let your feelings, don't let your emotions be that which speak louder than the authoritative and loving word of your God. And so in that gap of all of His promises and what He says is true, let faith fill that gap, but know that one day faith is going to be something of the past itself. And you will see this one you are united to face to face. And all of the joys and all of the treasure that is promised now will be yours by sight that day. Let's pray.